And for the rest of us, we are continuing our sermon series in 2 Corinthians. So if you will, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. An usher would love to bring you a Bible. We're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. My guess is many of you know that Missouri's most notorious bandit was a man named Jesse James. In 1866, he robbed the Clay County Savings and Association Bank in Liberty, Missouri, and during the robbery, an innocent bystander was killed. Uh, The next year, he and his gang robbed a bank in Richmond, Missouri, in which the town mayor and some other men died in a shootout. The year after that, in 19, or sorry, in 1868, yet another robbery, this one in Kentucky, and yet another man was found dead as a result of the robbery. And then over the next couple years, Jesse James robbed bank after bank after bank. He lived on the run, and he became sort of a sensation. But there was a problem. Now, there's lots of problems, but I want to point out one problem as it re- relates to Jesse James. And it's a problem you might not know about. It was a problem with a few, maybe a hundred or so men and women in a small town in Missouri, in a town called Kearney, Missouri. I'm hoping I'm pronouncing it right. I've never been to Missouri, though I've heard it's a real state. And the problem in Kearney, Missouri, all has to do with Jesse James. Because before Jesse James was the bandit on the run, he was known for something else. In 1866, before any bank robberies, Jesse James got baptized and became a member of Mount Olivet Baptist Church in Kearney, Missouri. One member describes Jesse James this way, quote, he was baptized and for a year or two, he acted as if he was a sincere and true Christian. In the early years, he was quiet, affable, and gentle in his actions. And as I just shared, within a year or two, a lot changed for Jesse James. So, what do you do if you are Mount Olivet Baptist Church in Kearney, Missouri, and your member, Jesse James, is going out robbing banks and murdering people? Well, I'll tell you what they did. Like many Baptist churches, they took real good records. And in 1869, they had a congregational meeting to figure out what are we going to do in light of all of this? What are we going to do with our member, Jesse James? And in that congregational meeting, and there's a lot of things we don't know, but one thing we do know is that there was not a consensus on what to do initially. Some perhaps thought, well, he doesn't really show up to church on Sunday anymore. And I'm pretty sure no one will really even know that he's a member of our church, so let's just do nothing. But he was on the membership roll. That means something. Others said, well, this isn't the Jesse James we know. This can't be. This must be just fabricated. Like, just like, this must have been, anyone who died must have been self-defense. And so people spoke up in defense of Jesse James. The, the, the loudest voice that we know of was that people stood up and said, well, it's not what we should do, it's what we can't do. 
Jesse James, if we do anything, he's going to come here and burn down the building. So let's just let bygones be bygones. Let's uh, just kind of like give it to God, do nothing, let him settle the score in the end. And yet there was a voice that won the day. Someone or some people began to say, well, I remember when the baptismal waters were stirred. I remember when Jesse James put on that white robe and got in the baptismal and got out of it, symbolizing his cleansing in Christ. I remember that he had a credible profession of faith and in love. We must do something. We must be courageous. We must not be fearful. We must pursue him, confront him, and in love, call him from darkness to light, call him to repent of his sins and turn to Jesus. So what would you do if you are Mount Olivet Baptist Church and Jesse James was a member of your church? Well, I don't know if they voted. I don't know how they came to a decision, but they came to a decision that, in fact, they were going to confront Jesse James. Evidently, he was holding up in some farmhouse nearby, and so they were going to send two deacons to confront Jesse James. I have no idea how they chose those two deacons. Like, raise your hand if you're the newest two deacons. You are going to Montana to confront the Unabomber. I mean, that's basically what's going on here. Praise God for deacons. But that's what they decided to do. Now, you can imagine the church is like thinking through all of the ways in which this could go wrong and sideways very quickly. And so they're thinking through all of the contingencies when these two deacons go and confront Jesse James. But there's one contingency I know that they had to think about. What happens if these two deacons go and find a Jesse James held up in some farmhouse and they call him to repentance And what if he repents? What do you do? I mean, discipline's easy. It's clean. But restoring a repentant Jesse James, that gets messy really quickly, doesn't it? Our our, our church believes in church discipline, that it's very clearly taught in the Bible. But here's the question of our text today, and it's the question for all of us. Can a church, in applying biblical church discipline on someone, go too far? And in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we find out a church indeed can go too far. The big idea that I want to put before you is simply this. We can't exclude from the church what God has clearly brought back into the church. And that is what Paul writes to the church in Corinth, starting in verse 5. So go go there with me, if you will. Verse 5. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excess sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake and in the presence of Christ 
so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. So I think it would be helpful if we sort of unpack these six verses in two movements. But before we get to kind of the, the, the central argument that Paul is making to the church in Corinth, we've got to know a little bit of the backstory and the context about why Paul is calling this church to do something in particular. So we've got to know about what's happened, and we've got to know what this confrontation is all about. And we know in verse 5 that evidently a man had sinned, and he had caused the, chur- the church great pain. That's the language there. Now, if you put your finger in, keep your finger in first, or 2 Corinthians, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It's the book right before it. And there in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, a man was having a sexually immoral relationship with his father's wife. As you can imagine, it was scandalous. And the church in Corinth at that time did nothing. Silence. Maybe this man gave a lot of money to the church. Didn't want to ruffle any feathers. Maybe they just didn't know what to do, but nevertheless, Paul writes to them in 1 Corinthians 5 and says, you must act, you must confront this man and call him to repentance. And if he does not repent, you need to discipline him by removing him from the church. And then Paul goes on to tell why they must do this. He says, you need to do this lest sin function like leaven in the church. That's the metaphor he uses. Meaning that It would spread. So those who, as Paul writes, the logic goes, those who normalize sin have a tendency to spread or perpetuate sin. And so Paul calls in 1 Corinthians 5 the church to take sin seriously, to confront this man, call him to repentance, and if he doesn't repent, to remove him from the church by way of discipline. So now go back to 2 Corinthians We have a man here who caused great pain. And you might go, is this the same man of 1 Corinthians 5 and 2 Corinthians 2? And the answer is, well, we don't know. I'd lean towards, I think this is the same guy. Most of the older commentaries lean that way. But nevertheless, it really does not matter. What does matter and what we do know is that this man, when Paul wrote 2 Corinthians, caused a lot of pain and sorrow and suffering in the church in Corinth through his willful sin, verse 6 tells us that the church, in light of that, confronted him. And he was then punished, if you see the language, he was punished by the majority. Notice this confrontation didn't come from the pastor initially. It doesn't say he was confronted by the elders. It says he was confronted by the majority So in the New Testament, just take Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5, and others as it relates to the ultimate authority to actually remove from someone from the church, it seems clear that it's actually the church that needs to do it. The church needs to rise up and speak against this. It's not just my call, the elders' call, the deacons' call. This is actually the church that needs to do this together collectively. And so the majority did this. 
They believed, as a result of this man's sin, that he did not have a credible profession of faith. They said, we're looking at your life. You say maybe you, you're a, a Christian, but we look in your life and going, it sure doesn't seem like you're an actual Christian. Not to mention, you're not repenting of your sin. You love your sin. You don't care about your sin. And therefore, the church in Corinth moved to discipline this man. Now, if, you, if you're here and you're like, this is really harsh, this seems odd, this seems crazy, you're not alone. Most of us, I'm guessing, read the Scarlet Letter when we were in high school, or we pretended to read the Scarlet Letter like, like me. And in that book, Nathaniel Hawthorne writes about a woman, Hester Prynne, who is found out to have committed adultery. And the church, if you just read this book, the church does not come off looking pretty. They come off looking judgmental, loveless, graceless, unkind hypocrites. And I think that pretty much sums up our modern understanding when it comes to the whole topic of discipline. You just do you. You have no authority to speak into my life. But I don't think discipline has to be a dirty word. I mean, we all practice or believe in forms of discipline. So the athlete disciplines his body so that they can become stronger. The parent disciplines a child in order for them to be wiser. An employer disciplines maybe their employee because they want them to be a better employee, and so they give them a performance review, which is, or can be, a form of discipline. Or let me get a, maybe a more modern example. This might touch a few of you. Alaska Airlines. Recently, was disciplined by the FAA in light of a plane whose door flew off mid-flight. And my guess is, you're fine with that discipline. I'm totally fine. As someone who flies from time to time, I am fine with the FAA grounding hundreds of airplanes so that they can check to see if Alaska Airlines knows how to use a screwdriver or whatever. I'm fine with it. Discipline is not a good, a bad thing. And I'm guessing Alaska Airlines, it costs them a bunch of money. But the point of it is that discipline was meant not to harm, but actually provide greater health to make sure that all the planes were safe so we can, you know, fly and not be on an airplane or an air flight like what happened in that airline leaving Portland. So the church kind of functions like the FAA confronting Alaska Airlines. Only in this case, an individual was sinning, and so a church is functioning like the FAA, pursuing them, saying, hey, we think it's unsafe. We think this is bad for your soul. We think the way you're going is not good, and so out of love, out of kindness, out of grace and mercy, we're going to pursue you and call you to actually repent and go in a different direction. And this is the backdrop of what's going on in Corinth. A church in love removed a member from its church because they saw him not turning from his sin. And they were right to do so. Paul says that from time to time, it's right for a church to exercise that God-given authority. We see that in 1 Corinthians 5. They were wise to do the uncomfortable thing, to get their hands messy and to have uncomfortable conversations and to call someone to repentance. Something changed. That's just the backdrop. Something actually changed in this man's life. 
And that really is movement two. That, that, that really is the bulk of the argument. That really is the confrontation that Paul is having with the church in Corinth. You see, he doesn't want the church to confront this man any longer in discipline. He wants to confront this man in comfort. Do you guys see that, verse 7? This man evidently has turned from his sins and repented. And we know that because verse 7, it says, we don't want you to keep disciplining this guy because he might be overcome with excess sorrow. So, so, so we know by this phrase that the man had some level of sorrow, so much sorrow that he didn't want the discipline of the church to push the man into despair. He had a godly sorrow. And so Paul demands, verse 8, that they reaffirm their love for him. That's the language of bringing him back publicly, saying this person is restored to us. Reaffirm your love for him publicly by bringing him back into the church. Announce it publicly. Reaffirm your love. Paul puts it so strongly, he says, you must do this in obedience. So this is an act of obedience. And then verse 10, he says, I have forgiven him, so you must forgive them as well. The man's repented. The man has been restored to God. Now you must restore him to the body, to the church, to the fellowship. Paul is basically saying, you can't keep out what God has graciously brought in. You can't kick out what God has brought back in. You can't segregate what God has united. You can't exclude what God has included. In Corinth, a man was potentially drowning in sorrow. And he was in danger of being sucked down into despair he, he wanted to be united to his brothers and sisters. He wanted to come to church and hear the preached word and sing the preached word. He wanted to take communion and, and to encourage and join a small group and, and to laugh and, and celebrate sorrows and live with people in their exciting times. He, he wanted all of it. And honestly, this doesn't happen all that often. It did in this man, but often I've seen when this happens, when someone is discipline, they just are like, well, forget it. I'm just going to run to another church. But this man didn't do this. He humbled himself and he waited. He, he did that soul work and asked for God's forgiveness, restored him, was restored to God. And now he waited. He waited for the church that he loved, the men and women that he had walked with for so many years. He waited for them to be allowed to come back in, to be restored, not just to God, but to this church. Was the church right to discipline the man initially? Yeah. But they were wrong in not bringing him back in when he repented. It was too far. The church does not have the authority, the God-given authority, to exclude what God has brought in. Discipline isn't, in this sense, about vengeance. It's about redemption. It's about restoration. And that had taken root in this guy's life. And so they must treat him in like accordance. It's a little bit like the prodigal son, right? The prodigal son runs, make a, makes a wreck of his life, and then he repents and he comes back. And what does the father do? He runs towards him and embraces him. But the older brother, he wants nothing to do with him. 
And Corinth was acting like the self-righteous, angry, embittered older brother. Now, this is tricky business. I realize that. I mean, it's, it's hard to comfort someone who has hurt you. I mean, it almost feels unjust. In Corinth 2,000 years ago, this man caused a lot of pain, a lot of hurt, a lot of trauma to men and women in this church, and now they're hurting. And then they find out that this man is hurting, and don't you think, even if they would never say it, because they're probably too polite to say it, they're at least thinking, well, serves you right. We've been hurting for a long time, and now you're hurting, and we're supposed to now comfort you? Come on, Paul. He deserves it. We suffered. Why shouldn't he? I don't think we'd say it, but we might just wonder, like, well, can't he just go to the First Baptist Church of Ephesus? It's just really a lot easier. Then I wouldn't have to see him, engage with him, make that small talk that's sometimes awkward, pursue them and ask for forgiveness as they seek to ask for forgiveness for me. And I think more, I'm wondering if people are like, and what are, what are people in Corinth going to think? I mean, this is bad for our witness. I mean, this guy's a known sinner, and now we're going to bring him back in the church? This is going to, you know, it's going to hurt our street cred. Classic Christians hanging out with the riffraff. Can't he just go away? I mean, there's lots of reasons that we might think through that we might not want to seek the restoration of a man or woman. It's just easier not to, to just stew on unforgiveness and to keep them at arm's length. Forgiving someone who has hurt you is tricky business. It's hard. I mean, it's hard enough to forgive someone who you're never going to see again. Imagine forgiving someone that you're going to see every week. Have to interact with, spend time with. Really hard. Really, really hard. Paul looks at this church, and by extension, I think he looks at all of us, and says, it might make you feel superior and good for a moment to push this guy away. You might feel, yes, I feel so good in doing that, but all it's going to do is deform your soul. And more than that, to not comfort this brother who has repented. Well, do you see in verse 11, he ends with saying it's basically like playing with a Ouija board. You're just playing right into the devil's scheme. Verse 11. That's how Paul puts it. He says, to not comfort this restored brother is playing straight into Satan's playbook. You see, Satan comes to divide. So if you go back to the first story in our Bible, you've got Adam and Eve and God, and they're all united, walking, completely united. Not even old navy clothing is between them, right? They're just united. And then Satan comes to divide. Did God really say that? And then the man and the woman were divided between each other, and then the man and woman were divided when it comes to God. Satan comes to divide. It's like his ministry. It's like his playbook. Uh, a year ago, I was coaching my son's flag football team. I'm a real bad coach, and so we had one play. But this play, I'm telling you, worked every single time, like touchdown. 
And so I'd tell the guys, they're like, can we do another play? And I'd be like, if it ain't broke, we ain't fixing it. We got one play, we're going to do it really well, and we're going to win every game. Satan's a bit like that. He's got like one playbook to divide that which God has unified, to create divisions where God has sought to bring unity. Marriages in conflict, parents and child in conflict, churches in conflict, in that sense are playing right into Satan's playbook. That's what's at, that, that's the cost of all of this. And the church of Corinth knew this, and I think all of us in one sense or another know this as well. Deep down we feel like, ah, I know that I should forgive, I just can't. I won't. And we see it there and we're like, well, I'm going to just step back. I'm right in this conflict. And so I'm not going to make a movement until they come to me and ask for my forgiveness. And I'm just going to sit back. And those thoughts are, as they divide, satanic. Forgiveness, it's hard. It's a tricky business. And I think left to ourselves, we don't really have the power, the energy, the fuel to pursue people and to pursue the ministry of forgiveness as Paul was calling the church to. Because there's one more factor we need to kind of consider and we see it in verse 10. Paul mentions the power to forgive, the fuel to forgive in verse 10. Paul says that he is forgiven in the presence of Christ. Christ looked with approval on Paul as he forgave this man. Forgiveness, it's a theme that comes up time and time again in Jesus' ministry, right? Jesus takes like his disciples and he's like, I'm going to teach you how to pray. Father, forgive our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. In other words, God has forgiven you much, so you in like fashion should forgive those who have hurt you. One of Jesus' kind of most famous parables is all about unforgiveness, isn't it? So, so, so you've got a, a, an employee who comes to his boss and is like, I got so much debt, I don't know what to do with it. Like, like, lots of debt. And I'm drowning in debt, and he is begging his boss to, in Matthew 18, to forgive the debt, and the boss goes, forgiven. It's, it's all gone. And you'd think that this employee would be like, this is fantastic, but he, he runs and finds someone who owes him a little bit of money and says, give me the money you deserve to me. And that third man is like, please, I don't have it. Please, please forgive it. But he says, nope, I'm not going to forgive it. Well, the boss hears all about it. He calls that second man who had been forgiven so much into, and he said, what's going on? Verse 35 of chapter 18 or right before verse 35, it's he, uh, the, this boss says, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had had mercy on you? And in his anger, the boss delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And then Jesus kind of brings home the major point, the takeaway, verse 35. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Christ has forgiven you. 
such greatness. Consider that reality, his forgiveness of you, and that's the fuel to help us forgive one another and to restore fellowship with our brothers and sisters. Consider your sin. Consider that we've all lied. Consider that we've all said blasphemous things. Consider that we have fallen short. Consider that we have run from God at times. Consider all the sins of omission, all the sins of commission that we have done, and yet at that same time, God brought us to repentance and brought us into the family, and God forgave us of all of that. Jesus came, and he died, and he rose again in order to among other things, to bring a people to himself and to forgive those people. On the cross, isn't that what he prayed, Father? Forgive them. They don't know what they do. This is the power that Paul grabs onto as he discusses the difficult and messy and hard doctrine of forgiveness. It's our motivation. It's the power, the fuel. Christ has forgiven us So we ought to do likewise. You want to experience God's affirmation. You want to feel what it's like for God to approve of something. Practice the ministry of forgiveness. Paul says you will hear or feel or experience the affirmation of Christ because that is the ministry of Christ. He forgives. So when you forgive, it is as if Christ is forgiving. That's the power. It comes from an understanding of all that we have been forgiven of in Christ. And Paul looks at the church, and I think he's looking at us and saying, you cannot exclude what God has not excluded. This man is not at arm's length with God. He has been forgiven. You must forgive them too. You see, unforgiveness like the parable in Matthew 18. It just keeps us shackled. It just imprisons us. We think that we're self-righteous and self-justified in doing it, but it just imprisons the soul. And Paul looks at this church and says, enough. The man is sorrowful. Bring him back and celebrate the grace of God in his life. Do not exclude him. That's just playing into the, the hand of the devil. In 1869, I'll end because you're all curious about Jesse James, I'm guessing. This is all true. In 1869, two deacons were about to go out and confront Jesse James with his sin and call him to repentance. However, Jesse James got wind that these two deacons were coming to find him, and this is the kind of guy Jesse James is. He beat him to the punch, showed up to church on Sunday, that next Sunday. Mount Olivet Baptist Church, Jesse James marched up to the altar, stood before that congregation and said, I renounce Christ, I renounce my membership, I renounce it all, I want nothing to do with you, good riddance, and walked out of the building. Really sad. Really, really sad. There was no happy ending, no reconciliation. There was no call to comfort the repentant. Here's the question I want to leave us with. What if he had? Are we the sort of church that welcomes in the repentant?
would we comfort him, as Paul calls the church in Corinth, the comfort. It's not our duty to exclude what God has clearly included. Let's pray. God, we... uh, We are so thankful for your grace in our lives. Even those times in which your grace comes to us and your mercy comes to us and your love comes to us by way of discipline. Lord, we we pray, Lord, that we would be marked as a church by those who have been so touched by the welcoming call of the gospel the beautiful call that you, sending your son Jesus, would use his life, death, resurrection to draw men and women from darkness to light, that we among all people would welcome the repentant, welcome men and women who hear that call and respond to that call and want to seek reconciliation. May we be marked not with unforgiveness, but by love, by comfort, and by reaffirming our love to even those who hurt and wound us. We pray all of this in your son's name. Amen.